Well, this morning we are getting back to our studies in John's Gospel. Um, we left off uh, at the end of chapter 3, just before the Advent season. And at the end of chapter 3, you remember that, that John was pointing us to the supremacy of Christ as that chapter ended. So John's priority is that we would all be believing in Jesus. That's what he desires for his readers. Uh, that we would be trusting in Jesus as the one who provides the eternal life and reconciliation with God that we need. Uh, so we ended chapter 3 with a consideration of Jesus' extraordinary superiority. That's where John brought us at the end of that chapter. And this morning we begin chapter 4. And as we would expect, chapter 4 proves to be equally potent for us in the truth revealed here about Christ. Though chapter 4 does uh, bring a bit of a different viewing angle for us with regard to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, so chapter 4, in a sense, is a contrast to what we had in chapter 3, where in chapter 3... Uh, the main interaction was between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a highly reputable teacher of Israel, a very respectable man in that sense. In chapter 4, the main interaction is between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And she's the exact opposite of Nicodemus. Uh, for reasons of her ethnicity and moral status, and even in the context of the social parameters of the day, given that she was a woman, she reflects as opposite a literary character as we could possibly have from Nicodemus. And yet what's fascinating is that while Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and then, and then by the end of this interaction he has with Jesus, he still seems confused, although we know he's ultimately affected positively as the gospel goes on. We'll see him again. Um, but he ends confused. He's come by night. In contrast, the Samaritan woman meets Jesus at the height of noonday, so in the brightness of the day. And ultimately, what happens to her is she's compelled by the reality of who Christ is to go back to her village so much so that by verse uh, 42, she goes back, witnesses to who Christ is, and many in her town are confessing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's an amazing turn there in the end. Um, and so what we're going to do is, is we're going to take our time to study this out well, this chapter 4 narrative, and, and really savor some of the, the redemptive glory that's in this passage. Uh, but as we started on chapter 4, as so often happens, I'm not going to make it quite as far as I was planning. Um, we're not going to quite get into the dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman just yet. We'll get there next week, Lord willing, but not this week. Because this week, we're going to just take our time with, with just the first six verses. And that's because in the first six verses, we have some very formative truth uh, with regard to the nature of Jesus' faithful ministry that can actually be very helpful for us. And, and, so, and so we want to sit with this a bit. And, and, that's, and we want to do this because uh, what we discover is John is actually giving us something of a, of a paradigm or a form um, that, that, that we need to pay attention to in this chapter with regard to what it looks like to live out faithful ministry. Um, and, and we get this because, because John has crafted chapter 4, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, John's crafted chapter 4 in a unique way in that much of what happens in chapter 4 has direct parallels to what is going to happen to Jesus in the passion narrative when we get into John chapter 18 and 19. So there's unique pictures along the way that are actually going to prove to be uh, frames for, for what's coming in, in Jesus's crucifixion narrative. And so I just, I'll, I'll show you a few of these just so you can see how unique this is in chapter four. Um, so, so for example, chapter four here, it begins with some conflict for, uh, with regard to the Pharisees. 
Uh, we fast forward to John 18, and Jesus is arrested and on trial because of the opposition of the Pharisees. Uh, very plainly, John tells us that. Uh, so, so there's that parallel. And then in chapter 4 here, Jesus is in a state of physical weakness. So we're told that he's weary in verse 6. Now we get into John 19, verses 1 and 2. Jesus is in a state of physical distress. Here in chapter 4, Jesus is thirsty, verse 7. In John 19, Jesus calls out from the cross, I thirst. In chapter 4, here events are taking place at noon or in the sixth hour, depending on how your translation renders it. In the sixth hour was the way they would mark out the middle of the day. You know, 6 a.m., it's starting to get light. Six hours from then is about noon. It's, it's, the sun is at its full, uh, full brightness, full peak. Um, but chapter 4, we have things happening at noon. Fast forward to the Passion narrative in John 19, 14, and we have the time indicator of noon as Jesus is handed over to be crucified. And then in this chapter, we have a reference to Jesus finishing his work in verse 34, John 19, 30. He makes the declaration from the cross. It is finished. And, and we could keep going with a few more. But, but there are all these parallels between John chapter 4 and the Passion narrative. And as we consider that, as, as good readers, we can tell that John is doing something purposeful for us and that he's showing something of a, of a paradigm, of a framework for ministry that is consistent in Jesus' own life. So the way Jesus conducts himself as he ministers to the woman at the well, there's a, a form there, there's things we can notice that are actually consistent up to and including Jesus' own ministry on the cross as he dies and becomes the Savior of the world as he's declared to be in chapter 4. So, so there's an intentional parallel that we're meant to see is a kind of framework, a kind of form that helps us see the way Jesus conducts ministry um, is, is something that isn't uh, just, just happenstance, but it actually is something uh, particular and something pattern-like that shows up again and again in his ministry. And so we can come to a passage like this, and we're really asking the question, what does, what does faithful ministry look like for Jesus? Because he's acting this way in this chapter, he's going to act this way, obviously, throughout the Gospels, but again, in a punctuated way, in the events of the cross itself, there's parallels. So what does faithful ministry look like for Jesus uh, as he interacts with the woman at the well? What does it look like for Jesus as he goes all the way to the cross? And, and so what does faithful, consistent service and ministry according to the will of God the Father look like, not just for Jesus, but for us? We have a pattern here that we're expected to, uh, to pay attention to as we study this chapter. And so as we consider uh, that kind of question, we find that there's just very helpful truth here as we observe the conduct of Jesus' ministry, not least of all in the first six verses of this chapter and the way things are introduced to us. Uh, there's something of a pattern in the ministry of Christ here. And it's a pattern that not only draws us out in trusting in Jesus, but of course it's a pattern uh, that also draws us out in following His example. We're always mindful of that. It's, it's the Apostle Peter writing his first letter who says, Christ also suffered for you. And why did Christ suffer for us? Well, well we know reasons why he suffered in order to pay the price for sin that we owe in order to save us redeem us all of these things peter included in all that truth peter makes a statement christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps that's one of the reasons jesus goes through the things he goes through so that we could watch his life and imitate him and so as we consider the beginning of chapter four today that's where our attention is going to be focused there's a pattern in the way jesus ministers a pattern that's reflected in the daily ministry of Jesus up to and including the climax of his cross-centered ministry. And we want to pay close attention to that pattern because, because we know our own need for help along these lines. 
What does it look like to live lives of faithful service, of faithful ministry? Um, Now, it's actually helpful just to remind ourselves in terms of the language that we're using here. It helps to remind ourselves from time to time that we are all ministers as followers of Jesus. You know, that is is the great truth of the Christian life, that that there's not actually a, a, a grand separation between sacred and secular roles as Christian believers, but everything we do is ministry as Christian believers. We're worshipers, no matter if it's in the context of our family life, if it's in the context of our various job uh, responsibilities, we live as ministers of Christ. Um, Sometimes we hear the word minister and we think it's a synonym for pastor, Uh, but as we run across the word in the New Testament, um, which which is not in our text, but I'm just using... uh, we're using it as a vocabulary word today, I guess. As we run across the word minister in the New Testament, it usually translates the word that could also be translated as servant, right? Sometimes it's deacon in the New Testament. Uh, but, but as we think about this, we want to frame our own life recognizing that we are ministers of Christ. As Paul says, we're ambassadors for Jesus out in the world. Uh, and, so, and so with that in mind, we recognize we're called to live faithfully, bringing glory to God and shining the light of Christ out in the world as ministers of Jesus. We're ministers in our schools, in our workplaces. We're all ministers of Christ in our church. Right? We serve one another. We pray for one another. We care for one another. As followers of Jesus, we're all ministers in that sense. So we can use this word and we can put it into our question. What does it look like to minister well? Well, what kinds of expectations should we have as we seek to minister in the sphere of calling and purpose where God has set us down? And maybe that's even a question you've faced as of late. What does it look like for me to faithfully serve the Lord Jesus in this particular context or that particular context? In these set of circumstances or in that set of circumstances, what does it look like for me to be a minister of Jesus? What kinds of things should I expect? How should I navigate some of these experiences that I'm having? And again, a passage like this comes and it gives some help to that. So let's, let's look at these verses together, one through six. We're going to start with the first three verses. And from those verses, we can say that faithful ministry includes the presence of tension. That's where we'll begin. Faithful ministry includes the presence of tension. Um, so if you remember from chapter three, Jesus and his disciples were engaged in ministry uh, during the same time as John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's disciples had become concerned because Jesus seemed to have been surpassing John the Baptist uh, with regard to the numbers of people going to him. So John the Baptist had to explain to to his own disciples that the whole point of his ministry was to decrease and and promote Jesus' ministry. So Jesus would be the one who is increasing, like this is how things are supposed to go, John has to say to them. But with all that, the religious leaders were becoming more and more interested in what was going on. And that's uh, not a particularly good thing because, because back in verses 19 to 26 of chapter 1, we already saw how John the Baptist has had some run-ins with the religious leaders of the day. They were asking about his ministry. Something, something was off in their, in their eyes in terms of what John was doing. And if you remember from studying that, uh, we talked about how it was customary for non-Jews to be baptized as, as symbolizing their purity entering into the Jewish community of faith. So as Gentiles would come in, Gentiles would be baptized. But of course, the problem was John was calling everybody to be baptized. You have Roman soldiers and you have Pharisees being called to be baptized uh, to demonstrate a repentant heart in preparation for the coming ministry of Jesus. And so the religious leaders would have been concerned about this. Why are we including Jews in this purification, right? That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're good. We're children of Abraham. We're fine. What are you doing, John? That would have been a point of tension. 
Uh, so concern was rising, especially given the numbers of people engaging in John the Baptist's ministry. You know, if you've got a strange person out in the desert and 10 people are out there with him, that's, that's not too big of a deal. But when you have crowds showing up to listen to John's preaching and be baptized, Jews and Gentiles alike, well, for the religious leaders of the day, we can see how this was viewed as a growing problem. And chapter 4 opens, and we're reminded of what John's own disciples had already noticed in the end of chapter 3, namely that now the number of people interested in John and his ministry is being surpassed by the number of people interested in Jesus and his ministry. And the religious leaders, as we tell here, they're, they're picking up on this too. This Jesus, after all, he's the one who, who, who drove all the merchants out of the temple very recently. The leaders had already questioned Jesus' authority when he did that. Now more and more people are interested in Jesus. So tensions between the Pharisees and Jesus are mounting. And so as verse 1 tells us, when Jesus learns that the Pharisees are aware that his ministry is surpassing John, when Jesus learns that he, he leaves Judea, which is in the south, and he heads north, uh, journeying now back to Galilee. That's what Jesus is going to do. Um, it, it does help us to know that, that in John's gospel, the main group of leaders that John references is the Pharisees. So in this gospel, there's actually no mention of the Sadducees or the Herodians, the other political and religious leaders that are around during this time. Matthew, Mark, and Luke speak about them. Uh, John doesn't. Uh, he just speaks about the Pharisees. And then all throughout his gospel, with the exception of Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, the Pharisees are a picture of those most opposed to Jesus. They're almost a character in and of themselves. Right? So, so as Jesus hears about the Pharisees now, uh, he... he he uh, recognizes that, that it's time to move on. In fact, there's actually a sense of urgency communicated here in the language John uses. If you just look at verse 3, um, in, the, in the CSB translation, we, we read that Jesus left Judea and went again to Galilee. The Greek text is a little more pointed, uh, where it reads something more like he abandoned Judea and went again to Galilee. Uh, so there, it's not that he's never going to be back to Judea, but there's a, a connection to the notion of haste there. In fact, we have the word again down in verse 28, when the woman at the well abandoned, she leaves her water jar when she goes to her town to tell everybody about Jesus. There's this hastiness represented in the word. Um, and so Jesus leaves quickly because there's this tension mounting. And, and we see Jesus function in this way from time to time in the Gospels. Uh, he knows that a final a more climactic confrontation is going to happen with the religious leaders. But he's also aware of the nature of, of his own ministry and the necessary timing of that ministry that precedes the cross. And, and so at times, when tension is mounting, Jesus will move on rather than stay in, in a conflict-oriented situation. So, for example, in Matthew 12, we read that the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. So he leaves. Um, so with all that, we put together what's here, and, and we have Jesus in a situation of tension. There's conflict. Um, tension with the Pharisees is, is increasing. And, and this helps us understand something of what faithful ministry can look like. There can be conflict, and there can be tension. Now, uh, we, we see Jesus dealing with conflict in different ways. In fact, it would be a fascinating study just to look at various episodes where Jesus deals with conflict and, and notice how he does that. 
um, in, in broad strokes, he basically has two approaches. He either stands up to those with whom he's in conflict, like he will in John 8, or he leaves the situation like he does here in John 4. So sometimes Jesus engages, sometimes he removes himself from a situation, which of course we remember Jesus is the personification of perfect wisdom. And you remember that, that uh, kind of strange proverb in Proverbs 26 where we have answer not a fool according to their folly lest you be like them and then what's the very next verse answer a fool according to their folly lest they be wise in their own eyes so you have these two things set right next to each other that seem to be contradictory except we see in Jesus's perfect personification of wisdom he does do that sometimes he stays engaged sometimes he disengages right and we have that played out in 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 various situations here though we have him disengaging as he experiences tensions and again either way we see that with consistency Jesus in his faithful ministry faces conflict there's conflict and that is something we need to be reminded of from time to time because often we can judge the the fruitfulness and even our own faithfulness in ministry by the peacefulness of our lives right just think about the practical categories of Christ where we of life where we serve Christ. So, so in our family life, if, if everything is peaceful all the time, that must mean I'm serving Christ well. Right? But that's not always true. Sometimes seasons of tension are, are necessarily part of fruitful progress in family life. Right? Or think about school. Those of you in school, you may have tensions, tensions you didn't remotely go looking for, but, but you can have tensions because your desire to faithfully confess and obey the Lord Jesus is present. And when that conflict flares up, when that happens, uh, sometimes we can think that we might be doing this whole following Jesus thing wrong because I'm having this conflict. Of course, sometimes we can con- conduct ourselves improperly and have trouble. Right? But at the same time, as we seek to live gentle lives at peace with all people insofar as we're able, like the Apostle Paul says, as we do that, conflict and tension can still come with a, with a teacher, with a friend, with a co-worker, right? with the dynamic of family life. And a passage like this just helps remind us that tension and conflict are not absent from a faithful life of gospel work. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. Tensions often rise because we're being faithful servants of the Lord. And so that reminder comes to us here and, and can be helpful. What does, what does faithful ministry look like? Well, faithful ministry can include the very real presence of tension, the presence of conflict. So that's first. And then secondly, if you look at verses 4 and 5, uh, faithful ministry doesn't just include the presence of tension, but faithful ministry also includes an element of compelled necessity. That's, that's what we'll call this heading here. Verses 4 and 5. There's an element of compelled necessity. So let me, I'll just read verse 4 and 5 again. Verse 4. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Now, now when we read that verse, particularly verse 4, it strikes us right away that we have this phrase, he had to travel through Samaria. He had to. And to do this, uh, John, John says he had to. And in fact, John uses a word there that's often translated as must in this gospel. Jesus must travel through Samaria to get to Galilee where he's headed. Um, now, now, we need to understand what's going on here because this doesn't immediately make sense because Jesus didn't have to travel through Samaria to get to Galilee. Uh, he, he could have gone around the region of Samaria 
and not traveled through there at all by going a little east first through Jericho and then up uh, along the Jordan River, and then he could have gotten gotten to Galilee that way. That, that would have been a fine route. In fact, sources record that that's exactly the route that many um, conscientious, observant Jews would take when they were traveling this direction because Samaria was considered a territory of unclean people. So they would avoid it, and, and they would go up and around that way, which we'll talk more about next week when we think about the Samaritan woman in more, more detail. But at this time, between, between racial tension, religious tension, even, even some military conflict between Jews and Samaritans, they didn't get along, so the most observant Jews would not travel through the land. They'd go, they'd go around it. So, so there was another way. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee, at least geographically speaking. Now, one response might be that that it's a little shorter route to go through Samaria to get to Galilee, so maybe Jesus was just in a hurry. You know, yeah, he was under some time pressure that we don't necessarily know about, and he just had to get there quickly. Uh, But that doesn't work either, because later in this chapter, when the Samaritans from the woman's town ask Jesus to stay, he has no problem hanging out for a couple days. He stays for two more days. So there's no sense of rush in this narrative at all. Uh, so, so then why did Jesus have to travel through Samaria? In fact, it's, it's actually even more emphasized in the Greek text in that, in that have to or this must word in verse 4 is the first word in the, in the sentence. We've talked about that before, how Greek has a way of emphasizing things. It's like underlining or italicizing something to move it out to the front of the phrase. And that's this word must is out in front. So Jesus must travel through Samaria as he goes to Galilee. Why? Well, the answer comes when we remember how, how, as one scholar put it, John uses words as conceptual markers in his gospel. All right, so, so John uses simple Greek. He, he's, he's a masterful literary craftsman, but he uses simple Greek. However, he uses words in a way that end up being special to his writing. And we have that, for example, we've talked about that probably the most with the word world. In John's gospel, world doesn't mean bigness, but world means badness in John's writing. There's a uniqueness to that where he makes it special and uses it in a special kind of way consistently. And and he does that with a few terms, including this word that's translated as had to or must. Uh, Because what we discover is that when John uses this word, he almost every time associates it with the compelled divine necessity underpinning Jesus's ministry. So, for example, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus back in chapter 3, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, what? The Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him might have eternal life. You see, there's this must attached to Jesus being lifted up on the cross to be our Savior. John the Baptist uses this language, too, in the passage we just finished with. He, I must decrease, He must increase. In chapter 10, in the context of speaking about Jesus' free offer of salvation to the whole world, not just to the Jews, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not from this pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So it's the must of the Gentile ingathering into the family of God there. Or or, uh, just give you one more, we have John's narrator note Uh, speaking this time in chapter 20 about the disciples when they're confused about the empty tomb. And John writes, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And we could give many many more examples. But but when John uses this term translated as has to or must, it's, it's not a word used merely to make a little extra emphasis here and there without any particular focus. Instead, it is a word that's punctuating necessity that's attached to Jesus's ministry. 
So here Jesus must travel through Samaria like he must be raised up on the cross and like he must rise again from the dead. Jesus must travel through Samaria. And as we'll see next week, it's exactly for this reason of divine appointment with the woman at the well and the salvation of many in her town that Jesus must go there. All of this pointing to the fact that like chapter 9 will will, will tell us, Jesus is not just the light of Judea and Galilee, Jesus is the light of the world. He comes for all people. So he must go through Samaria, you see. There's this this divine impulse and purpose represented here. There's this element of compelled necessity attached to Jesus' ministry. Which, on on one level, we just praise God for that, don't we? We praise God for that. We recognize that in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus didn't tumble half-heartedly through the work that he was called to do, having some effect here and some effect there. But instead, there's this intense determination on the part of Christ as he's fulfilling the purpose given to him by God the Father in the ministry he's carrying out. That there's, there's no afterthoughts in his salvation purposes, but there is this divine underpinning of purpose that attends all he's doing. There's this necessity that compels him, and we praise God for that. As we come to Christ in faith, we're coming not to the one who is uh, looking over and saying, oh, look at you, you made it over here. Right? Oh, that's interesting, I'm kind of surprised to see you here. No, we have the Jesus of initiative represented all throughout this chapter. He's the one who comes by necessity to be our Savior, and he's purposeful in his activity according to God's divine plan. And so we're just thankful for that picture in terms of Christ's own ministry and the, and the assurance that that gives to us, the comfort that it gives to us. Jesus is determined to do the work he's going to do, and he does it perfectly and faithfully. There's this divine necessity that compels him. And then... Along with that, when it comes to our own lives lived according to a pattern of gospel ministry priority, this matter of necessity can also be helpful for us to think about. Paul actually speaks to this idea in his own life and in the lives of his missionary colleagues when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. And he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Hear the necessity in that. Controls us because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So so Paul's saying that we as as ministers of the gospel, as livers of faithful lives under Christ, we're compelled, we're controlled, we're constrained by the love of Christ to exercise our lives in in faithful service to God. There's a compelled necessity. And And this is something we experience as believers. There's a sense in which the things we do, even the hard things, we almost can't help but do. As, as, as Christians, to just take, just for my own life, I'll take this example. As Christian dads, we have our foibles, no doubt. Right? But, but there's something in us as Christian dads that just longs to care for our families well and in a way that serves them and points them to Jesus. It's just part of what it is to be renewed in our heart as Christian dads. There's this compulsion, right? As Christians in secular settings, whether it be school or work, we find ourselves in conversations with others. And then the timing can be just such that we have an opportunity for gospel witness. And, and, and I'll tell you for myself, I know it because I start getting a funny feeling in my tummy. Right? I need to say something. I'm compelled to say something here. And sometimes to my shame, I don't, but I should. There's that compulsion to speak about the significance of Christ with this person who's, who's going through something and we feel that divine necessity placed upon us. Here we are with this gospel opportunity. We recognize that kind of thing taking place in our lives. So, so, so a life of faithful ministry includes this, this must factor. We, we feel bound in, in, in the most holy and good sense. We feel bound by this. I must try to be clear 
uh, with the gospel to my kids. I must be a light for Christ in the world. I must pray. I must meditate on the scriptures. I must repent of the sin that eats at me. I must serve in the church. I'm compelled to do that. It's, it's sometimes awkward to say that as a pastor. I must serve in the church. You know, there's that comic, you've seen it, and it's just extremely corny, but where the man's lying in bed and his wife comes and he, she says, hurry up, we're going to be late for church. And he says, I don't really want to go today. And she says, you have to go, you're the pastor. Um, so, so, so if I say I must serve in church, a person might think that that's just because it's my job and I have to be here. But, but I tell you, job or no job, there's a compulsion in us as Christian believers to be at church with the people of God, isn't there? Right? There's a compulsion to be here, smiling, stacking chairs, eating muffins. Hopefully donut holes, sometimes muffins, Right? Right? depending on the week. But there's a compulsion to gather with God's people that we just can't ignore. It's there. Right? We need to be here. And, and, so, and so this is just part of faithful ministry. We're awakened to these new necessities as we're born again by the Spirit of God. We delight to obey the Lord. We long for it. And we recognize that in the course of our life. Faithful ministry includes the presence of tension and it also includes this, this must element, this element of compelled necessity. And, 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 we, don't, and we don't want to ignore that when it's present. And so just on that point, it's actually worth reflecting on that. Is there a, a place, a sphere of compelled necessity right now that is present in your lives that, that you've been a little hesitant to engage in? I mean, I'm asking myself as I ask you, we have to recognize it's a positive thing. There's something worked in us by the Spirit of God, and we want to engage faithfully in those places. Right? So we've got uh, the presence of tension. Faithful ministry includes that. Faithful ministry includes an element of compelled necessity. Must, must. And then, and then finally, we'll just say something about verse 6. In verse 6, we can also say that faithful ministry includes times of weariness. So verse 6, I'll, just, I'll read that. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. So Jesus is now passing through a Samaritan town near the historical site of Jacob's well. You can read about Jacob uh, giving Joseph this land in, in Genesis 48. Uh, so it's a historical setting. I understand that you can still go sit by this well to this day. It's known. Uh, but Jesus is there and we're told it was about noon, which means it was hot. Uh, so hot, in fact, that um, in this area, near, nearly all daily tasks, ranging from everything to grazing cattle to, to law proceedings in court, were put on hold at noon because of how hot it was and, and they would be resumed later on in the day. So it's very hot. The journey's been very long and Jesus, having, having kind of hastened away from Judea, remember the, 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 the intensification of that there, uh, because of that, there's this building tension. He's got this divine compulsion of necessity attending him and, and the way he's going, he's now weary. So he's tired. It's the same word used here as in Jesus' famous statement, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. It's a word that speaks to great exhaustion. It's used in Luke chapter 5, uh, where Peter's very dejected when he says, we toiled, we became weary all night and caught nothing. Right? So toiling, laboring, wearying, Jesus here experiences very real exhaustion in the heat of the day. And, and apparently, we, we can actually get this from verse 8, and then in 27 and 31, apparently Jesus was so weary that his disciples go off looking for food and he stays behind. And then, and then when they come back, again down in 27 and 31, they come back and try to get him to eat. They want him to eat, and Jesus takes it as an opportunity to teach them. But Jesus is evidently quite worn down, and they seem worried about him. You need to eat something. Right? 
which on the one hand reminds us of the significance of the personhood of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Remember John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then Jesus, worn out from His journey, sat down. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully human. We have this picture of Jesus in the gospel. The one who had divine knowledge of people's hearts at the end of chapter 2 is here physically wiped out at the beginning of chapter 4. Jesus is fully God and fully man. So here Jesus in the fullness of his humanity is weary from the, the compelling necessity of this particular ministry journey. He's tired out. Uh, which again we can all take great encouragement from. Have you ever been seeking to be faithful in the things that the Lord has called you to and just ended up exhausted? Or actually, we can add something to that question. Have you ever been seeking to be faithful in the things the Lord has called you to, ended up exhausted, and then started to second guess if you should really be giving of yourself in that kind of way given how worn out you are? After all, work-life balance is very important. And I'm very tired, so maybe this direction of service ought not be what I'm doing right now. Maybe it's time to take a break and relax, a little rest, and, and I'll get back to faithfulness when I have a chance. And of course, there is a time for rest, isn't there? But you'll notice Jesus sits down here, and He sits down to rest. He has a few moments. But then what does He do when the woman who, culturally speaking, He would have every excuse to ignore, what does He do when she walks up? Does He say, well, I'm actually taking some time out right now. It's some time for me. Uh, I'm really tired. It's uncouth to speak to this woman anyway. I need a break. I'll just keep quiet. No, Jesus jumps right into one of the longest discourses in this whole gospel. Consequently, a whole town comes to believe in him. So there's a time to sit down by the well, but there's also a place to recognize that tiredness is very often a part of what it looks like to serve faithfully and something we face in the midst of serving faithfully. Jesus literally personifies that. And, that's, and that truth is, is very real for us, whether it's in our service to others within the church, whether it's in our service to the glory of God out in the professions that we're called to, certainly when it comes to our parenting, when it comes to pursuing growth in our marriages, faithful lives of ministry include times of weariness. Here, here's something interesting. Did you know that for the pastor who regularly preaches, studying to the point of being really tired because of the study is actually one of the prerequisites for receiving a paycheck? Do you know that? That's 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul says to Timothy, Let the elders who lead well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's the word labor there. It's the same word that's translated as weary in our passage, and it means to work to the point of exhaustion. So, so if I don't work hard enough to get significantly tired in preparing Bible teaching for you, I'm not doing my job faithfully as a pastor. I'm supposed to get tired. Tiredness is a requirement for preaching. And then this translates, like we've said, to so much of our service. It's good to remind ourselves that getting weary is not a general marker of misplaced or overextended service. Weariness is very often a component of faithful service, even a required component in some cases. And so we can check ourselves by this. Am I laboring hard right now as unto Christ? Or in family life maybe, or in the pressures of work, seeking to be a faithful steward of the resources and tasks that the Lord has set before me. In church ministry, I, I, I know you work hard in all of these things. There's, it's no small thing to pick up double duty down in nursery uh, for a couple of weeks. It's no small thing to make that extra effort on a tired evening to go meet with a brother or sister in Christ who needs a listening ear. We get tired. When you're tired, be encouraged. 
Be encouraged. Listen, listen to this. Listen to this. Mark chapter 4. On that day when evening had come, and evenings are the worst. They're just so tired. You always have to do stuff in the evenings and you're tired. Right? On that day when evening had come, Jesus told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. That's such a funny way Mark says that. What, you're not going to bring Jesus? <laughs> took him along. Uh, and other boats were with them. A uh, great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. When you're tired, be encouraged. Right? The master of the universe was so weary from ministry that he could fall asleep in a fishing boat that was being sunk by a storm in the middle of all that wind. Right? That's tired, but that's faithful ministry. And so, and so we think about all these things just recognizing the practicality of the truth John is sharing with us here. Here's Jesus, fully God and fully man executing perfect faithfulness all the time in every place and in every way. Jesus lived out His earthly ministry in complete and untarnished holy perfection. And here that includes these three things. The presence of tension, hmm? compelled necessity, and times of very genuine exhaustion. And it just helps us to know that. Because Jesus is the one who went all the way to the cross to exercise perfect ministry and we're called to follow Him in a crucified style. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up that instrument of death to self, Jesus says, and live for me I'm the, as the one who saved you. And those days are not always easy, but the one who has been wearied is the one who knows what it's like. And as Hebrews says, because he knows, he can actually be the help we need. So we depend upon him. We look to him, not just as our example, but we actually look to Christ as our supplier of the strength we need in the context of this kind of weariness. Right? Our weakness is actually, as Paul makes very clear multiple times, our weakness is actually a glorious opportunity for the strength of Christ to shine in our lives. And we depend upon him for that. So, so we can reflect on all of these things. Maybe, maybe there's one of these aspects of, of Jesus' ministry that's particularly applicable to you this morning. Maybe you're facing tension. Maybe you've been renewed in some compulsion to, to do certain things as a result of the gospel. Maybe, maybe you're just really, really tired. But we come to these things recognizing that they're all marks of faithful service. And we're thankful for the Lord's example. And we're thankful for the Lord's persevering strength that He grants to us. Let's pray together. So, Lord Jesus, we want to live as faithful ministers in the spheres you've set us down. Uh, you minister uh, perfectly always. We ask that you administer your strength to us, minister uh, your strength to us individually and as Christ's church. We want to be your faithful servants and we recognize our need for help. Uh, we're thankful for your clarifying word and ask that we would be strengthened. Uh, we ask this in your name. Amen.